0: All right, now, if you got your Bible, open to Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 41. That's where we're going to be this morning. I told some of the men this morning, I've gone the past few days with, with no congestion, no nothing, that I woke up this morning coughing and hacking and stopped up. And so, I don't know what that means, but we're getting there. Uh, maybe in a, a month or two, I'll be... By the time the mosquitoes get here and start attacking me, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be healed up and good to go. All right, Mark chapter 9. Uh, this morning, we're looking at the, at the idea of being kingdom-focused. Now, one of the things we talked about last week briefly as we started the service uh, was the fact that we as Christians exist in two different kingdoms. Uh, we live in this earthly kingdom, but also the heavenly kingdom. And so, uh, as we live in the heavenly kingdom, or the kingdom of God, we... We strive to live as good citizens. That means we, uh, we seek to obey God. We follow God. We understand that God's laws uh, or God's, God's values, God's morals trump those of the world around us. So if, if our world says that it's okay to lie, even in small situations to kind of make life easier, and God says thou shalt not lie because we're citizens of God's kingdom, God's rules trump the rules or the, the culture of our world. But also as Christians, uh, as, as we exist in the kingdom of God, not only do we live in it, but we strive to expand it. We strive to see the kingdom of God expanded. That's why Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came to to bring about the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ came that people might know Him. And that's how we expand the kingdom of God. By living in such a way that God is glorified. By by sharing the gospel. By uh, inviting people to church. By living in such a way with our words, with our actions, uh, that people are drawn closer to Jesus. that, That people come into the kingdom through the gospel. That's how the kingdom grows. As people Come into the kingdom. So, as we seek to see the kingdom of God expanded, we understand that we're not the only ones doing this. We understand that Calvary Baptist Church is not the only church in the world that is seeking to see the kingdom of God expanded. We are part of what is, what is called the, the universal church, which means every believer in all of the world, we are all connected through uh, our commitment to through our faith in Jesus Christ. And in that, all of the, the, the world, uh, all churches, all Christians should be moving in the same direction, seeking to glorify God, seeking to honor God, seeking to see the kingdom of God expanded. And not only is Calvary Baptist not the only church doing this, but, but Southern Baptists are not the only denomination that is doing the work of seeing God's kingdom expanded. Now, Southern Baptists send out a lot of missionaries. Uh, we, we, we come together with our, with our tithes and offerings to see uh, uh, missionaries taken to our, our nation and to the world. But Southern Baptist is not the only denomination that is doing the work of God. And so this brings up questions, and where do we stand when it comes to other denominations? Where do we stand when it comes to uh, churches that are non-denominational? Where does it come, or where do we stand when it comes to churches that look different or or, or do things differently than us? I can promise you, if you go to a church in Africa, it looks 100% different than our church looks. I've gotten the opportunity to go to churches in Africa, and they are, they are different in how they act and how they sing and how they worship, but they still preach and teach the same gospel. Churches that are just now being started, church plants, they're going to look different than a church that has been established for, for 50, 60, 100 years, and so what do we do when it comes to other churches? And So there are questions that we need to ask ourselves, and this is kind of the direction that we're going this morning. Do we only support and accept those churches or those groups that are part of our group, or are we willing to say that God does use other churches, other denominations, as long as they are sound when it comes to the essentials? And secondly, do we just blindly accept everyone who says they're a Christian or says they're a church, or are there qualifiers that we need to kind of hold people up to uh, to make sure that we're all kind of in the same boat, moving in the same direction? Now, if you've read any of Paul's letters, Paul, Paul lets us know there are false teachers out there. And so this morning, what we're going to see is we're going to look at some of the qualifiers that we should have when it comes to other denominations or other churches, and also looking at how we have to understand that, that God is bigger than our church, and that God is bigger than, than even Southern Baptists, and God is using a lot of people to expand His kingdom, and how do we handle or work with that? So let's kind of set our context. Just so far in chapter 9, we've seen, even in the past few verses, the disciples dealing with this idea now that they understand that Jesus is the Messiah. But their understanding is that he was going to be a political Messiah, a political Savior. So they got that wrong. And Jesus is moving them to understand that he is a, a spiritual Messiah. And so last week we looked at how the the disciples were arguing and fighting among each other saying, uh, who is the greatest? When it comes to Jesus being this earthly king, who gets to kind of sit on his right and on his left? Who gets to kind of be the greatest or be the best alongside with him? And Jesus closed last week's passage by saying, uh, anyone who receives one of these children receives him or or anyone who shows kindness and compassion to the least of these, that's what it means to, to follow him and to be great. So this leads us into a question that John asked, starting in verse 38. So let's look at verses 38 through 41. We'll pray, and then we're going to make our way back through the passage. It says this, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will, soon, will, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and I pray that as we look at this passage, God, I pray for understanding God, I pray for wisdom. Father God, for us as we hear your word. God, I pray for the words, God, that come out of my mouth. God, that they would be clear, uh, precise. And Father God, that you would speak louder through your spirit and through your word, God, than my uh, voice ever could. Father God, I pray that you would use this to show us the greatness of the gospel and the importance of truth and who you are. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, so the first kind of question that we're asking, which is really kind of a question that the disciples ask, is how do we discern real and fake? Or how do we discern real from fake? Probably better uh, grammatically. But anyways, verse 38, John kind of, uh, after Jesus has said this about uh, accepting or receiving or showing kindness to the least, John asks Jesus or says to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And here's the question that John is asking. Who's right? Was this guy right to be going out and doing this, or were we right to, to cast him out, or to say, get up, you shouldn't, or to try to stop him, try to put the brakes on and say, you shouldn't be doing this. Who was right? Now there's some observations that we can gather kind of from his question or from his statement. First, it says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons. Now, John says he was actually casting out demons. He was not uh, trying to cast out demons. He was not pretending to cast out demons. He was not uh, making bold claims that he had cast out demons but not done anything. He was actually in the process of casting out demons. What this would be uh, likened to today is someone uh, boldly proclaiming truth or proclaiming the gospel or standing against sin. They were doing a work of God. Now, Jesus has already said in Matthew chapter 12 that the, uh, uh, the enemy is not going to cast out demons. He says this, but the Pharisees heard it and they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. So Jesus has has kind of made a statement already that says if someone is casting out demons, they are not doing that by the power of Satan, but their power comes from God. Because a house divided will not stand. So as John makes this statement, he's making a statement that this guy is doing a God-glorifying, a God-centered, a a God-empowered act or work. Next, it says that he was doing so in Jesus' name. He says he was casting out demons in your name. What this means in Jesus' name, and we're going to look about this in a little bit more in depth in a second, but the idea of this is he was doing this understanding that he did not have the power in his own. He was doing this understanding that it was only by Jesus' authority, only by Jesus' power, only because of who Jesus was, Jesus' authority over sin, Jesus' authority over evil, Jesus' authority even over Satan himself, that that this act could be done. And, and the fact that it was being done shows us that his faith was actually in Jesus and his power and his ability. He wasn't just using Jesus' his name as kind of a catch-all or kind of a magic wand. He was actually believing that because Jesus was greater, Jesus had the power to help these people, to, to rid them of this, this sin, of these uh, evil presences in their life because Jesus was greater. Now, this verse isn't going to be on the screen. But there's a story in Acts chapter 19 that's kind of the opposite of this or shows us what happens when someone is just trying to use Jesus' name. as just kind of a, a chant to kind of uh, do something neat. Listen to the story. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Verse 13. Then someone of the itinerant uh, Jewish exorcist undertook uh, to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, "I adjure you by the name of uh, by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims." So. What he says is there's these uh, itinerant Jewish exorcists. What what this means is these are not people who believed in Jesus. They were still people who who followed the Jewish law. But what they were doing is they were trying to use Jesus' name as kind of this magic wand to go out and heal people and cast out demons. Verse 14, it says this, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, "'Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you?' Man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled of the house naked and wounded. Now, two different stories. You've got the seven sons of Siva who... Did not believe in Jesus, did not believe in the power of Jesus, just saw Paul doing something. said, hey, I want to get in on that. And so there was no authenticity, there was no genuineness, there was no in the name of Jesus. It was just, hey, we're going to use Jesus' name to try to do this neat thing. And they got beat so bad, they ran out of the house naked. I've never been in a fight, but that sounds like a whooping to me. And then you've got this guy who the disciples see, who is doing this in the name of Jesus, and he is actually casting out demons. And so what this means is he's not pretending or using Jesus' name. It's just kind of magic word. He actually has his faith and trust in Jesus and recognizes Jesus' power. So then John says, we saw him casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So John says they tried to stop him because he wasn't in our group. He wasn't part of our clique. He wasn't part of us who were, who were kind of following you and walking step by step with you day in and day out. He wasn't part of our group, so we tried to stop him. So there could be several reasons why he tried to stop him. One, an honest misunderstanding. Hey, he's not part of our group. Jesus has empowered us to do this at one point when he sent the disciples out two by two. This guy wasn't part of that group, so should he be doing this? Maybe it comes from jealousy. If you remember a couple of verses back as the disciples, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John came with Jesus down off the Mount of transfiguration. They came and the disciples were, were arguing with the Pharisees because there was a demon that they could not cast out. And so here's this guy casting out demons, and, and they were unable to do so previously. So maybe, maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it comes from this idea that, hey, we could do this, and if other people can do this, maybe we're not quite as great as we thought we were. Maybe we're not quite as special as we thought we were. But here's what I believe John is asking. Here's the, the motive that I believe that is coming from John's heart. I honestly believe that John is asking is, how do we know... If this guy's in the right or wrong, how do we discern if this guy's genuinely trying to follow you and glorify you and honor you, or if this guy's just a phony that's just trying to get power and glory for himself? How do we discern right from wrong? How do we discern real from fake? And look, we have to learn this too. We have to understand this because as Christians, there are a lot of different types of churches out there. Some good, some bad. And we've got to be able to discern because we don't want to find ourselves like John and getting rid of someone that is doing something good that we're about to see that Jesus gives his seal of approval to. And I've look, I've been in churches that... Over the smallest thing, despise other churches, churches that are doing good things. I've been in churches where people have told me that if you're using a screen and you're not using hymnals, then you're trying to control and manipulate people, that screens are bad and any church that uses a screen is a bad church, not a good church. Well, that's not true. I've been in churches that uh, were so contemporary that they took the other stance that if if you use hymnals, that you're too old school, and if you wear a suit, then you're going to offend people, and suits are evil, and suits are bad. Now, I agree, suits are evil. But but look, if you want to wear a suit... Wear a suit. If you want to wear a suit on Sunday morning, wear a suit on Sunday morning. You're probably not going to see me doing it. Because look, I'm wearing this and I'm already sweating like a, like a stuck pig. And so if I wore a suit, I'd lose about 30 pounds every Sunday. I'd waste away to nothing. But, but that doesn't define what a good church is or not. And I've seen churches on both sides cast out other churches. Basically the same thing John and the disciples did simply because they did something different. So, how do we handle this? Kind of, How do we discern this good from bad, real from fake? First, we understand that our discernment is based on where people stand with Jesus. Verse 39, Jesus responds to John. He answers this question. He says, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards to speak evil of me. So the first thing he says is, don't stop him. This is Jesus' seal of approval. This is Jesus saying, hey, it's okay. He is doing a good thing. Don't try to stop him because he's doing good things. He then says that anyone who does a mighty work, in my name. So this is kind of uh, in his name, what we talked about a second ago. What does that mean? Here's three words that I've got for us that I want us to kind of understand what his name is kind of summed up in. First, association. Doing it in the name of Jesus, saying that you are... uh, This guy was associating himself with Jesus. What this means is, the things that Jesus says, that's what I believe. The things that Jesus says to do, that's what I'm going to do. I'm lining myself up with Jesus. So that Jesus is the one that I follow. Jesus is the one who... Who defines my values? Who defines what is good? Who defines what is right? Who defines what it means to to know God and to love God and to trust God? I'm associating myself with Jesus. And so when we associate ourselves with Jesus, we automatically disassociate ourselves from from other things, from things that are sinful, from things that do not glorify God. And so this guy's associating himself with Jesus, which is automatically different from what the seven sons of Siva did. They were not associating with Jesus. They were just trying to use Jesus' name to get something for themselves. This is completely different. This guy's associating himself. He is lining himself up completely with Jesus Christ. Second, subjection. This means that he is admitting that his authority to cast out demons does not come from him, but it comes from Jesus subjecting himself to Jesus' authority in his life. So not only is he lining himself up with Jesus, saying, I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, but he's also making sure that his life comes under the authority and the rule and the reign and the dominion of Jesus. Jesus is not only his friend, Jesus is his king, he is his Lord, he is his God, he is his ruler, he is the one who is over in control and ruling over his life. And thirdly, impact. God is using this man, and so therefore there is credibility in what he is doing. Because he is not just going out and pretending because he is actually casting out demons, because he is uh, actually accomplishing it, we understand that that power does not come from himself. The only one who has power over Satan and over his forces is God. The only one who has power over sin is not us. We don't have power and victory over sin in and of ourselves. We have it through Jesus. And so because this guy's associating himself, subjecting himself to Jesus, and there is impact shown in his life. That's kind of what in his name means. This is what this guy's doing. Jesus is giving him kind of that seal of approval. This guy's doing a good thing. So next Jesus says that all who do a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward, uh, I'm sorry, will not be able to soon afterward speak uh, evil of me. The idea here is that there is no neutral ground with Jesus. The fact that this guy is associating and subjecting himself to Jesus. It shows a genuine faith. It shows a genuine commitment. It shows a genuine relationship. And so this guy will not be able to now kind of live this life of placing his faith and trust in Jesus and then do this mighty work and then come over here and say he doesn't believe in Jesus or then come over here and mock Jesus or then come over here and, and, and say that he believes in something else or someone else. He is genuinely uh, operating in God's power. He is genuinely placing his faith and trust in Jesus. This is not just lip service. This is not just words to this guy. This guy has seen Jesus do this stuff. He's recognized Jesus' power, and he's placed his faith in Jesus, and therefore God is using him to do this work to expand God's kingdom. Now the opposite of that is found in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. It says this, this is as Paul writing to Titus, and he's talking about uh, these people these, uh, on the Isle of Crete that, that Titus is dealing with as a pastor. And it says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Our faith should genuinely impact our life. We cannot say that when we talk about there's no gray area with Jesus, we cannot say, hey, I know Jesus, but then by how we live, that's what this passage in Titus is saying, they profess to know God, they say they know Him, they say they've placed their faith in Him, but they deny Him by their works. Their lifestyle speaks something completely different. Their lifestyle, how they live, the things they look at, the words they use, the values they have, the things most important to them— do not line up at all with their claim to know God. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, there's no gray area. If this guy places his faith in me and there's impact, God is using him, there's, there's work being done in my name, in his life, then he cannot be different or live this kind of different life. That, that, that because God is using him, because there's an association He's genuine in his faith. This is not just fake to him. This is not just words. So how does this apply to our lives? First, there's no neutral ground with Jesus. You can't dance around with Jesus. You can't say, hey, yeah, I love and know Jesus, while at the same time living a life completely uh, foreign to who Jesus is. There are people who pop up sometime on my, on my Facebook who... Um, one post will be a Bible verse and, and how awesome God is and how much they love Jesus. And, and the next post is, is pictures of them going out and getting wasted or, or pictures of them uh, living with their boyfriend and their girlfriend. And those are two things that don't line up together. Those are two things that, that don't jive. They don't, it's oil and water. You can't say, I love God, and then publicly, unrepentantly, just unabashedly live a sinful lifestyle that does not glorify God. Those two things don't go together. There's no gray area with Jesus. Now, C.S. Lewis gives a great quote uh, that I want to read just because it's a quote that I really like that kind of plays into this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus would say would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of someone who says that he is an egg or he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about this man being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now in that passage, Jesus, or C.S. Lewis is talking about people uh, looking at Jesus as just a great teacher, obviously not, and not Lord, but I think it plays in here too. Because we can't say Jesus is Lord while at the same time living a life that denies him as Lord. He does not allow it. It's not an option given to us in Scripture. So we cannot play gray area. There is no gray area. We cannot dance around with Jesus. Secondly, I think that we can see kind of some of the ways that we determine kind of the idea of real and fake here. through the idea of in his name that we looked at. So if we're looking at another church or we're looking at a pastor or a teacher or we're looking at someone who's written a book and we're looking at their book in life way, how do we determine real and fake? How do we determine, is this someone that I should look at and trust or is this someone that I should bypass, that I should say, stop doing stuff or at least don't listen to them? First, do they acknowledge who Jesus is biblically? Does their understanding of God and Jesus line up with Scripture? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Jesus, who died for our sins so that our faith and trust might be in Him, so that we can be saved. This is that idea of association, lining up with who Jesus is. Now understand, Mormonism is a huge religion in this country. Mormons claim to be Christians. But Mormons do not line up with association with who Jesus is. Mormons do not believe that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Mormons do not believe that Jesus is God. They believe that that Jesus was the first created thing, but he is not God. So that goes against association. So we would say that Mormons line up kind of more on the fake side. T.D. Jakes, who's a very popular pastor, wrote a lot of books, huge church. He denies the Trinity. Joyce Meyer says that Jesus stopped being the son of God on the cross and that Jesus himself had to be saved. These are all ideas that do not line up with association to who Jesus is. So that's one thing that we do. Are they associated with the person of Jesus Christ? The biblical person of Jesus Christ. Second, are they submitted to God in their lifestyle and their obedience? When we see their life, when we see their values, when we see their morality, are they doing the things that glorify God? There's a guy, now I've never listened to his sermons or or read anything about, or I've read a lot about him, but I've never read his books. But there's a a pastor named Creflo Dollar. He's big in the, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. But in the last year or two, he was asking his church and asking people for $65 million so that he could have a private jet. That does not necessarily line up with the, being subject to Jesus Christ when it comes to uh, your finances, to what you value, to what's important to you. Not only that, but he's got a lot of bad theology. He could line up with the association part too. So that's, that's someone who's not submitted their lifestyle in their obedience to Jesus Christ. And third, are they being used to impact the kingdom? Is God actually using them? Now understand, this does not mean that they've got a big church or that they've written a lot of books. Size does not matter. In fact, Jesus Christ said that in this world, uh, the mass amount of people are going to go down the wide road but can go through the wide gate uh, because that's the easy way. And there are few that go down the narrow road to the narrow gate, which leads to him. So just because there's a big group, does not mean they're having impact. Joel Osteen is one of the pastors of one of the biggest churches in America. Here's a, a, a part of an interview that he had with Larry King a few years back. Larry King was talking about, is Jesus the only way to salvation or the only way to heaven? And he asked him this question. If you believe, uh, you have to believe Christ, then they're wrong, aren't they? That's people who, Hindu or, or other people who don't believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior for salvation. Here's how Joel Osteen responded. Well, I don't know if, if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I just think that that only God, with, that only God can judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know about their religion, uh, but I know that they love God. I, I, I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me, it's what the Bible teaches. I want to have a relationship with Jesus. So this is someone who has a large following, but does he impact the kingdom? If he's willing to say on national TV that there are other ways to to God besides Jesus, then no, he is not having impact for the kingdom. So we kind of take this association, subjection, impact. Are they lining up? If they line up, if they're good... Then that is someone good. That is someone like Jesus saying of this man who is casting out demons, don't stop him. But if they're not, then they're not people that we should have things to do with as a church or as Christians. Next, there's no gray area with Jesus. Look at verse 40. He says, For the one who is not against us is for us. So Jesus says, Don't, don't make him stop, don't tell him to stop. Uh, He's doing this in my name. He's not going to be able to speak evil of me. And then he kind of clarifies or takes it a step farther and says, look, if they're not against us, they're for us. Jesus kind of draws a line in the sand. If they're not against us, they are for us. So who are those who are against us? Who are those who, who would be against us? Those who just do not believe in the gospel yet. Those who have not accepted Jesus Christ yet. Those would be on the the against us side. Now, they're open to the gospel. Uh, God can always change their heart. But as they are lost, they would be on the against us side. Atheists who are, are actively hostile against the gospel. Those would be against us. Governments can be against us throughout history. Throughout history, governments have been actively anti-Christian from uh, the Roman government persecuting Christians, from communist governments trying to quell and kill the church. Even now in our government, there are, uh, as, as judges are being brought before uh, Senate, the, the Senate is asking them about their faith, which is illegal, uh, but trying to decide, should Christians be able to hold public office? And that's kind of the direction that they're going. That's, those ideas are hostile towards us. Those who claim Christ or Christianity but have a seriously flawed theology, false teachers like some of what we looked at against us. Churches like the Westboro Baptist Church. I hate that they're Baptists, but that's that, that church that goes around and calling out names against soldiers as they, as they come back in caskets and, and being hateful. And uh, I went to their website this morning. Their website, as you open it up, there's a big banner at the top that says, God hates fags. That is against us. That is not God glorifying at all. That is not uh, building up God. That, that is against us as genuine believers in the faith than any who bring open shame to the name of Jesus. So those are those who are against us. So who are those that are for us? Those who are for us are the ones that, that share our same belief of the gospel. Now, we've talked about this on Sunday nights, but, but for us as believers, there are essential beliefs that we hold tight-fisted, that we do not let up on. This is the person of God, the person of Jesus, the Trinity. This is salvation through Jesus Christ alone. By placing your faith in tr- and trust in Jesus, the core of Christianity, the gospel, who God is. This is what we hold tight-fisted. If someone lines up with what we believe about the gospel, they are people who are for us, they are like this guy. They might not necessarily be part of our group, but if they hold to the gospel, they are for us. Now, there are other beliefs that That are not essential because they do not tie to the gospel. They do not tie to salvation. We're more open-handed about those. But if someone holds to the essential beliefs of the gospel, then yes, they are for us. Those who are seeking to expand the kingdom are for us. Now, they might do church differently. Their, their, their style of dress might be different. Their, their pastors might wear a robe, or, or maybe they, they wear full suits, or maybe they're, they're even more casual in their dress. Maybe they're wearing t-shirts and jeans. That does not matter if they are preaching the gospel and seeking the kingdom to be expanded. Maybe they look different than us, their ethnicity or their backgrounds. Um, maybe they have different views when it comes to the non-essentials. If you haven't picked up yet, I really believe strongly in preaching through the Bible verse by verse. When I first got here, we went through, I think, 1 John, uh, and then we, this is our 35th week in the book of Mark. We're just over halfway through, but we've been going through verse by verse. I'm not the biggest fan of, of, of kind of doing four-week or, or five-week series where you jump around different verses, but... If churches do that, as long as they're preaching the gospel, as long as they're not preaching anything false, then they are for us, even if we differ in some of the things that are not essential. And finally, our connection to Christ and our common goal is what binds us together. Jesus said, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, that's the fellowship of believers. Will by no means lose his reward. I believe what Jesus does is he closes out here, he's just saying, look. The important thing to remember is the fellowship we have in Christ. It is the fellowship we have in Christ that because we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, that 's what binds us together, not because we 're all from Arkansas or we 're all from Mississippi or we're all farmers or we're all this or we're all that. What binds us together is Jesus. What binds us together is our faith and trust in Jesus, and really not even just here in Calvary, but other Christians here in Corning, other Christians in Arkansas look. I have experienced this. You can go to Africa and meet another Christian. There is an, an instant kind of, of bond because of your faith and trust in Jesus. Different cultures, different backgrounds, different experiences, but you are bound together by Jesus. And so what I believe Jesus is saying, what I believe we walk away with this morning is if people are proclaiming the gospel, no matter what the secondary and tertiary and other issues look like, if people are trusting in the biblical Jesus, if people are proclaiming the biblical Jesus, then we can pray for each other. We can encourage one another. We are, we are bound together by Jesus Christ. It is Jesus that has changed our life. It is Jesus that has saved us. It is Jesus that has forgiven us. And It is Jesus that that, that we... Follow and we obey in seeking the kingdom of God expanded. I want to close with this passage. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says this. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul is sitting in prison, and he says, look, there are some people who are preaching the gospel because they love God, they love me, Uh, God has used me to make an impact in their life, and they're carrying out. There are some people that are out there, they're preaching well not a false gospel they're actually preaching the gospel their motives are off their motives are wrong their motives are somehow they don't like me and they think that because they can do this and I can't because I'm in jail that it's somehow going to offend me and that's why they're doing it but Paul says guess what As long as the gospel is being preached, then I'm going to be thankful. As long as the gospel is being preached, as long as people, whether in pretense or truth, are hearing about Jesus Christ and understanding that it is only through Jesus Christ that their lives can be changed, that they can be saved, then I rejoice. As Christians, our goal is to see the kingdom of God expanded. And yes, We pray that God uses our church. And yes, we pray that God uses our denomination in large and in big ways. But also, we need to pray for other Christians whose churches look different than us, who might not be Southern Baptists, but praying that if they are doing God's work, that if they are following the biblical Jesus and preaching and proclaiming the biblical Jesus, praying that God would work in them and through them to expand His God is bigger than us, God is bigger than our association, God is bigger than our church, and we need to pray that God's gospel, the gospel of truth, is proclaimed throughout the world. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now and thank you for this time. Father God, we thank you We thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you change lives, that you change hearts. Father God, I thank you that you are bigger than me. God, I thank you that you are bigger than this church. God, I thank you that you are bigger than the state. God, I thank you that you take your gospel throughout the world. And Father God, we pray for other churches. God, in our area, we pray for First Baptist here in town, Father God. We pray for for other churches in, in, in in our nation. God, we pray for other churches meeting all across the world this morning that look different from us. God, as long as they are preaching and proclaiming the gospel, God, we pray that you would bless them. God, we pray that you would bless their message. We pray that you would bless their work as they seek to expand your kingdom. And Father God, we pray that lives would be changed. We pray that the kingdom would grow this morning. And we pray, God, that the enemy would lose people. And God, they'd be brought into your family. Father God, we thank you that you are a big God who changes lives Even in areas and ways, God, that we can't even see. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.